I promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. I'm a wonderful person. The Holy Gospel on this 18th Sunday after Pentecost comes from St. Matthew, the 21st chapter, beginning at the 23rd verse. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They answered, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. This is the gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn then and live. Well, I have two stories for you this morning, just like we'll be looking at two scripture passages. So uh, go ahead and put on your best cardigan and your slippers and sit down. It's story time with Pastor Speed. So our first story uh, comes from The Economist. It's an obituary. Um, Very uplifting, right? Um, Anybody read the obits in the paper first? There's some people, just to make sure I outlived all of them, right? Anyways, um, this is the story of Bindeshwar Patak. He died this summer. He's the father of modern sanitation in India. And he just died, by the way, to give you an idea of sanitation in India. But anyways, let me read to you. It all began with a dare. Bindeshwar Patak, then seven or so, wondered Why the thin little woman who came through the back door, sometimes selling bamboo utensils to his Brahmin family, was called untouchable? He wondered why his grandmother sprinkled holy water over the floor where the woman had walked and was told she had polluted it. So one day, he dared to touch her cloak to see what would happen to his body. Nothing happened to it, but uproar broke out in the house. They called in the priest. 
he said Bindeshwar must be banished. His mother intervened to save him from that, but the rest of the priest's remedy was almost as terrible. He had to plunge into cold, holy water and much worse, drink a mixture of milk, ghee, curd, cow urine, and cow dung to purify himself. Grandmother mixed it up fiercely and forced it down him. Later, he learned the reason for it. The poor, creeping woman belonged to the lowest caste of people in society. It's women mostly made a living by collecting night soil. Just if you're wondering, that's not dirt. Cleaning it out from buckets and dry pit toilets with a metal brush and pan, but often with their bare hands. They then carried it on their heads in baskets to some far-off place. For this work, they were shunned. Even after they had bathed, they could not use the wells unless some clean quote-unquote, soul drew water for them. Shopkeepers threw them the goods they bought and shook water over their money. It was fine to touch a dog, but not these human beings who were exactly like him. So began his obsession with sanitation, which soon became a mission. The equation was simple. If Indians had proper flush toilets, they could clean them themselves. If the scavengers were not needed, they could, with training and support, find other jobs and lead lead dignified lives. India could become cleaner, healthier, and in time, more equal. Shortly after university, Bindeshwar spent three months among scavengers in the town of Betia, enduring with them the stench, the humiliation, and the filth that leaked into his hair. One day he saw a small boy killed by a bull because, since he was untouchable, No one would help him. This redoubled his determination to make his mission national, though few listened. His family were appalled by his peculiar, shameful obsession. His father-in-law disowned him. Imagine living in a society where people are shunned, considered the least of the least, the dirtiest of the dirtiest, because they dare to have the job to clean up your mess. Hmm. And I wonder if today, do we have people like that in our society? Do we have untouchables? Not just in the church, but in our society, people that we won't even touch with a 10-foot pole, that we won't help, that we won't do what we need to do. Well, the story goes on to tell of of his mission to bring... uh, flush toilets to all of India, and there's still a fifth of India that doesn't have flush toilets. But imagine that one man trying to take the time to raise up a whole group of people who have been shunned because they don't fit what society says they should be. Well, second story, story number two. I need to tell you the story of Mandy. This comes from the podcast Bodies Behind the Bus, episode number 57. This is a podcast done by a couple who who got out of a a mega church in Seattle uh, in which um, they, they have people come on and tell stories about spiritual trauma, trauma caused by pastors and by the church. And so they had Mandy on. Mandy attended a church in, in Wisconsin. She started going there when she was in college. Uh, loved it. It was a community-based church. It was giving her something. She needed family around her. It gave her an instant family. It was Bible-based. The pastor would teach line by line through, through the scriptures. She loved that. 
But over time, she started to see things that made life a little bit harder in that church. Number one, they had a very top-down leadership structure. It was a pastor as CEO situation. The pastor was in charge. Had elders around him to help him, but it was kind of sort of hair pastor, my way or the highway. Uh, Secondly, they had membership rules. And once you became a covenant member, you basically pledged your life to the church. You committed to work in the church. You were were supposed to do uh, two hours each week of work or ministry in the church, which kind of sounds good, right? There's certain things that we need your help around here to do. Am I right? We need to get some things done. But imagine this, that they were also told they had to get permission to take vacation on a weekend. Because if they missed a Sunday, that church had to find somebody to take their place. Say you were working in the nursery. We have to find somebody to work in the nursery, right? Oh, no, we don't want to be troubled with that. So you have to come to us and get permission to to go on vacation. Uh, You need to keep your life together. For instance, uh, any sense of failure or brokenness was frowned upon. You really had to be striving for Jesus. Church discipline was taken to an extreme where if, for instance, you would get a talking to if you didn't stay for lunch after church. Uh, Sin was basically said to be any disobedience of the church or the pastor. Some of you right now are sitting here going, well, I'm screwed. Add to that... uh, there was some unwritten rules, for instance, that if you were deciding to get married, men, you were supposed to come to the pastor to ask for permission to ask the young lady to marry you. Right? Um, kids. If you wanted to have kids, you would have to have discussions with people in the church to find out if it was the right time to have, to have children. And I'm not, this is not a cult, okay? This is just one of many churches around the country that life is like this for people that attend these churches. Parenting. How many of you parents have ever felt judged by other people because of the way your children have behaved? Luckily, my children are in the second service, so they're not here. (laughs) But for Mandy, uh, she was already judged because of the fact that she got married once and then got divorced. Then she got married a second time, and her and her husband were Kind of judged because they didn't go through all the hoops of asking permission, marriage, all that stuff. Um, And then they didn't go through all the right hoops necessarily for kids. They ended up having two little babies together, beautiful babies. Uh, The firstborn, both of them rather young at this time. This is a couple of years ago. Firstborn has autism. And the church treated that as fake news. Okay? It wasn't autism, it was bad parenting. Oh, you just need to spank them more. Put them in their place. Okay? So basically, at a certain point, Mandy is drowning and the church is throwing her an anchor. 
She's feeling like they're not able to give enough. They're not able to do enough. They're wanting to take vacations, but they feel like if they do, they're going to be judged. She's seeing people in the church that have left the church that have been shunned by their friends in the church because that was something else. You leave the church for any reason, even if it's a good reason, and you were told by the church not to talk to them because they were under church discipline. They had sinned. They had turned away from their community. And so here you have Mandy being told that all these loved ones, all these ones that she loves around her, are second-class citizens. And that's not anachronistic, just like the caste system in India is not anachronistic. It's not in some far-off land. This is churches everywhere. Some of you maybe came from a church like that. I know Carrie and I did. You want to sit down for coffee sometime, Carrie and I can tell you about the amount of times we've been hurt by the church. Not this one, though. I promise. Not this one. Other ones in the past. But we have a caste system church. In the church, even, we have those in our minds that are righteous and unrighteous. Even in the Lutheran church, we have those of us who think, oh, I'm saint, not sinner. And then we have others who think, there's no way I could ever be good enough. Hmm? Maybe that's you sitting here today. Ezekiel 18 comes to us like a tornado to destroy that, to, to take that little religiosity house that we have built and, 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 and tear it down to the foundations. Because he first starts out with that proverb, right? I've always loved this proverb. Uh, the fathers eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. What it's saying is that you are judged or should be judged by who your parents were. Do we do that, church? We do. Just open your eyes. We have whole families that get judged because one member of their family, for instance, is a mass murderer. They have to change their names and move because we decide the sin of whoever. Oh, that's the whole family. Or how about any of us uh, growing up, you know, have that term, the other side of the tracks? You know? Or if there's something wrong with the uh, dog, there's something wrong with the pup. That there, that there are these sins that come down upon us, and so I'm going to judge you based on who your dad or mom was? That was the thinking back then. And God comes and says, no. All, both child and parent belong to me. And they say, well, that's not fair. Yeah, it's not fair that you're judging in the way that you're judging. Judgment is up to me, says the Lord. And I'm going to judge the way that I'm going to judge. The soul that sins will die, he says. In Ezekiel 18. And then God makes it even worse because, and these, this is just two separate sections of 18. You should go home and, and read Ezekiel 18. It's awesome. But he basically says, the righteousness that you're depending on from your past can't save you. But he also says, the wickedness of your past will not condemn you. And that's when he comes to you and says, turn and live. I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. The Hebrew says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who can die. That kind of narrows it down, doesn't it? Right? Anyone here not going to die? I'm hoping maybe, I'm not looking forward to the process of death, but I'm hoping Jesus comes back beforehand, just because I don't feel like that. but. But instead he just says, turn and live. Turn, meaning turn away from trusting in, oh, I'm a good boy. I'm a good little boy. I'm going to be fine. Or, Turn away from, I am such a bad boy. How could anybody love me? 
Instead, turn to God and trust in God that he's the one who's going to give you life. Second text, Matthew 21. The religious leadership comes to Jesus and they ask him a question, right? What do they ask him? By what authority are you doing these things? Because that's what church bureaucracies do. They decide on authority, right? That's why I have diplomas and things in my office so you know that I'm a real pastor. Um, but they come to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, what things? Well, uh, this is right after he does the triumphal entry, right? Donkey, all that stuff, palms, right? And then he makes the whip and cleans out the temple. Yeah, turns over things. And then he's teaching in the temple. So it could be any of those things. By what authority are you doing these things? And I can see Jesus going, well, which one? Now, well, all of them. The kicking people out of the temple, the turning over the tables, the preaching, the healing, how dare you? They're wanting to know, by what authority are you doing this? Was it one of us, one of us religious leaders, because we know you didn't go to our seminary, Jesus. Was it one of us, or was it the Romans? If it's the Romans, we're in trouble. But if it was one of us, we'll take care of that. We'll handle that in-house. And so Jesus, being Jesus, he just says, well, let me ask you one question. You give me an answer. The Greek, give me an answer. He doesn't care about what answer. He just wants an answer, right? Even if it's a bad answer. Anything. Teachers in the room, you're like, yeah, just give me an answer. John's baptism of God or man. And what do they say? We don't know. Why? Because if we say, well, it's of God, he's going to convict us because we didn't believe that John the Baptist was from God. And if we say of man, the people are going to kill us because they like John the Baptist. And so they say, we don't know. The religious leadership, they're, they're creating this hierarchy for themselves. They're trying to decide, well, who should be in and who should be out. They didn't really like John the Baptist because John the Baptist, even though he was the son of a priest, he wasn't part of them either. And so he says, well, I'm not going to give you the answer then. Because the reality is if you answer the question correctly, you would know the answer by what authority I'm doing these things. And so Jesus tells them the story, right? Two sons. Jesus likes parables. Two sons, right? First one, go into the vineyard and work. And he says what? New. But then later it says he changed his mind. He repented and went. Second, says what? Yes! And then he goes back to play video games. Right? Is that what happens? Yeah. Then he just asks them a question of... Which son did the will of his father? And they said, well, I guess the first one. He says, well, you've answered correctly. Good job. You got one answer right today on the pop quiz. And then he tells them, this is why, and this is what the Greek says, the active prostitutes and tax collectors are going to the kingdom ahead of you. It doesn't say the ones that were formerly those things. It's in the present Meaning, right now, the ones who are prostitutes and tax the one who are prostitutes and traitors are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why? Because John the Baptist came in the way of righteousness, and you did not trust him. How did John the Baptist come? He came with a baptism in which people were confessing their sins. A baptism in which people were coming forward and saying, 
I'm not good enough. But I know this one who is telling me that someone is coming who will take care of that. Who will take care of that problem of not being good enough. And so he blows up any caste system there to say, the active sinners have a place in the kingdom ahead of you because they know they're sinners and they know where they need to go. Well, the story for Mandy does have kind of a happy ending. There is good news for her, gospel for who for her. It's the height of COVID in the summer of 2021. She and her husband have decided they need to leave. They're put under church discipline because the pastor says they've been talking bad about him. That wouldn't be anybody here, right? Hoping not. Um, They're being scolded for this. On top of this, she has two babies, one with autism, one without. Both of them are sick with fevers. Remember I said height of COVID, by the way. And they eventually, they leave their house and they go and they stay in a hotel for a few days just to get away. They just can't handle it anymore. She's having panic attacks, anxiety attacks. She's having suicidal thoughts because her entire world is thrown upside down. And finally, her sister comes to her and says to her, Mandy, all this stuff that has happened to you in the church and the fact that they've done nothing to take care of you is not right, but there is something wrong with you. You need help. And she finally said to her, I think you might have postpartum depression, which at least gave her somewhat of an answer and that there's some medication, there's some treatment for this. And so... Um, which, by the way, the church that she was in was one that really didn't believe in counseling or medication, by the way. But we do, though. Take your meds. Um, <laughs> and so she takes her two babies, puts them in her car while her husband's at work, and she drives to urgent care. And she's just sobbing as she's signing herself in. And her babies are crying. They're sick. And, of course, remember, height of COVID? So what happens to them in the waiting room? They get put off in a corner by themselves. And she's got all of this weight, all of these burdens, plus she's got two babies. One of them is inconsolable. She's holding one, trying to calm them down. The other one, she's rocking in a stroller while she is just bawling. And um, I should have warned you. (laughs) An elderly woman came out of the lab the lab area, and she sees Mandy. Mandy doesn't know this woman at all. And she walks up to Mandy and she says, can I please hold one of your babies? And Mandy says, this is the first time in a long time that someone has come to me and offered me help to take one of my burdens. That's the gospel, church. It's not you becoming a better person. It's Jesus coming to you and taking your sin, taking your burdens, those things that break you, and getting rid of them. The church had failed Mandy. Her pastor had failed Mandy. There's a reason why Pastor Chris and I preach the way we preach and do the things that we do here, of radical grace of God and mercy, because I don't want Mandy's in this church I want this to be a church where people come to you and say, can I hold one of your babies? Can I be with you at the worst of times? I want mercy and grace to win out because that's what Jesus brings. When the church becomes about the Christian rather than the Christ, it has failed. 
And I'll fight tooth and nail against that because it turns everything into a game of winners and losers, power, and some sort of semblance of our own piosity that is worthless. That's not Jesus, nor is it the gospel. Let me conclude by reading to you from Luther, of course. We're a Lutheran church. Uh, This is from Freedom of a Christian. It's a little treatise that he wrote. This is what actually made me Lutheran, reading this little tiny book. I have a copy if anyone ever wants to borrow it. But he's writing about the reality of the fact that the Bible talks about us as the bride and Christ as the bridegroom, right? Does this all the time. That includes you, men. In the, in the world of God's kingdom, you're, you're a chick, so just get over it. White dress and all. Little flowers in your hair. Good. But he's writing about this and about the, about the marriage between Christ and his bride. And he says this, says this, Let us compare these and we shall see inestimable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The human soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ, while grace, life, and salvation will be the human souls. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? In German, this is called the Frohliche Wechsel, the happy exchange. He comes to you, you give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. And then Luther writes, Who then can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of glory of this grace? Here this rich, divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor, wicked harlot redeems her from all her evil and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. Thanks be to God. Amen.